Hello and welcome to episode 28. It is October 30th at the time of this recording, which means that Halloween is tomorrow, which means that I'm happily hyped to eat those treats down the driveway come tomorrow night. For the past five episodes, or actually if you count this one, I guess you could say for the past six, the focus has been on horror movies, most of them celebrating milestone anniversaries. And as always, I have to put out there Lauren Bacall's quote that I've repeated now virtually ad nauseum, but it's such a great one. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So try those words out on anyone who has never seen any of the films covered this Halloween season, or hell, in any of the episodes in the archives of this podcast. If they dismiss them with a wave of their hand and say they're not interested because they're from a long time ago, they're black and white, no, 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 no. Every movie is a new one if it is a first-time viewing. So in today's episode, join me as we step back into the swinging 70s, the decade of polyester and disco lights, John Travolta's index finger, And over in the world of pop culture entertainment, a spate of religious-themed horror movies that pretty much kicked off with 1968's Rosemary's Baby, but catapulted into the big time with 1973's The Exorcist, which not only became a global phenomenon, but a multiple Academy Award nominee. Three acting nominations, an adapted screenplay win, a couple of technical nominations, a nomination for the director, and in an extreme rarity for a horror movie, a Best Picture nominee. Hot off the heels of The Exorcist was 1976's The Omen, starring prestigious actors like Gregory Peck and Lee Remick. I'm mentioning these movies for a reason. In order to fully grasp why the Amityville situation exploded into the cultural zeitgeist the way that it did, you have to keep in mind that these movies about Satanism, demonic possession, witchcraft, they were really front and center, at least as far as the horror genre goes. But before we go any further, it's necessary for me to issue a warning, and this is a sincere one. This episode is going to be going into some details that might be disturbing or might trigger some unexpected reactions for you. So if you consider yourself more of a sensitive listener than, I'll say as they say on TV in those little boxes in the movie ratings, personal discretion is advised. If we're going to be looking at the 1979 movie The Amityville Horror, even as just a movie, it is impossible to get into it without including references to a true crime that occurred in that house in 1974. It's a crime involving multiple murders, including those of kids. So out of respect for all of you, just know that now. But if you're good to go with it, then we're good to forge ahead. And I want to say right out of the gate that I have every intention of having this be tasteful and dignified. No cheap shots at the real-life people involved. No attempts at humor that border on the disrespectful of the real-life deceased. That's one of the reasons why there was no poll this time around. I couldn't think of a poll that would not come across as cavalier or thoughtless or insulting to the people who lost their lives in that house in the early morning hours of November 13th, 1974 or anyone who lives in Amityville now and has to still, all these years later, deal with curiosity seekers all the time. So I wasn't going to put up anything on my socials like, would you spend a night in this house, yes or no, or anything like that. It, it, it didn't, it, it would have felt too, it wouldn't have felt right. With Amityville, if you're familiar with the name at least, or have any vague memories of images of the house, or from the movie, from its heyday, then you may or may not remember that the whole thing really is two stories that sort of morphed into what's become a a dubious icon of horror movie history, not to mention true crime. By that, what I mean is that in order to understand the ins and the outs of the 1979 movie that's based on an allegedly true story, there's more to it than just your archetypal haunted house thrill ride. The house is real. 
It's a six-bedroom, two-and-a-half-story Dutch colonial, and for all intents and purposes, it's gorgeous. It's got a finished basement, an in-ground swimming pool, a big backyard. It's got a dock and a boathouse out back that faces the Amityville River, which a couple of miles down spills out into the Atlantic Ocean. It still stands in the village of Amityville today. It's in an upscale neighborhood along the south shore of Long Island, maybe about 45, 50 minutes, maybe an hour away from downtown Manhattan, and it remains privately owned. So don't trespass and bother the owners. Don't drive up on their lawn or gawk in their windows or throw holy water on the front lawn. Just let them live their lives. The house used in the movie is a Hollywood recreation. The exterior itself is pretty much accurate, but its location is all off. In the movie, it looks like a much more rural area than it actually is. It's not surrounded by woods the way the movie would have you believe. I mean, it's Long Island after all. The houses are not spaced up and down the street as far apart as the movie would have you believe either. But to begin at the beginning, the Amityville story begins around 1924, when John and Catherine Moynihan built a house for their family at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville. Another house that was built in 1872 originally occupied the lot, but that one was moved to another part of town. So the house that we're talking about, the famous one, is not the first one to be built on that property. According to the 1999 History Channel documentary called Amityville The Haunting, the Amityville Historical Society, quote, refused to appear on camera and insist that the only reason the original house was picked up and moved was because Mr. and Mrs. Moynihan needed a larger house to accommodate their growing family, not because of any paranormal disturbances, end quote. The house stayed in the Moynihan family until the summer of 1965 when it was sold to a family by the name of DeFeo. The DeFeos were an Italian-American family from Brooklyn. There were five kids, three boys, two girls. The parents were Ronald and Louise. The youngest of the five was John Matthew. Then there was Mac, Allison, Don, and the oldest was Ronald Jr., who went by both Ronnie and Butch. According to court documents... By 1973, incidents of domestic abuse, physical abuse at the hands of the father, Ronald, began to grow worse and more frequent. The oldest son, Ronnie, or Butch, he became a heavy drinker and a user of heroin, speed, occasionally LSD. And Don, the oldest daughter, she was constantly at odds, verbally and physically, with the father. During one particularly bad argument, and I'm going to quote Butch himself, quote, I picked up a shotgun. I knew the gun was loaded, you know, and I said the hell with it and went to kill him, but the gun didn't go off, end quote. No bullet in the chamber, apparently. And according to the same History Channel documentary, Big Ronnie, the father, he saw this as nothing short of a miracle. So he threw himself into Catholic devotion in gratitude. He surrounded the house with these religious statues and had masses said inside the house. According to paranormal investigator Ed Warren, in that same 1999 History Channel program, Big Ronnie even went in the spring of 1974 to St. Joseph's Oratory of Mount Royal in Montreal, Canada, and brought back with him a priest, quote, who would say the prayers of exorcism in his home. And from all the information I learned, candles were toppling over, doors were opening and closing, end quote. That's Ed Warren saying this. But in an official letter from the Director of Communications at St. Joseph Oratory, it's dated May 19, 2000, the letter said, quote, we have no evidence of a visit made by the DeFeo family to St. Joseph's Oratory in 1974. We do not have either any evidence of a priest being sent from St. Joseph's Oratory to the DeFeo's home in Amityville, New York, to conduct a mass, or possibly an exorcism, during this period. In the Roman Catholic Church, it is absolutely forbidden for a priest to conduct an exorcism without the explicit permission of the local bishop. 
If there were any exorcism performed, the office of the bishop in New York City would know for sure. This is the best assistance I can offer in this matter. End quote. And that was from the Director of Communications at St. Joseph's Oratory in Canada, sent to the producers of this History Channel program. The horror came to an awful climax in the early morning hours of November 13, 1974. 23-year-old Butch was the only one who was out of bed. He was apparently watching on TV a 1969 Burt Lancaster movie called Castle Keep, which is set during World War II. And I guess the last 15, 20 minutes of the film or so, you just see complete and total obliteration of American and German troops. Within a short time, the entire DeFeo family, with the exception of Ronnie, would be lying face down in their beds, having been shot and killed. Butch's defense attorney, William Weber, said in the History Channel program, quote, Ronnie said that during this movie, he heard his family members whispering, and he thought he believed that they were conspiring to kill him. At or about the end of the movie, he said that a person with black hands appeared and gave him the rifle, and he went ahead and proceeded to shoot each member of his family, end quote. In 1979, five years after the murders, Butch would say in an interview, quote, I shot my father first, then I crossed over and went to my mother's side of the bed. After that, I tell you honestly, I couldn't stop if I wanted to. I couldn't put the gun down, so I felt somebody was inside moving me. End quote. Then, in a 2005 documentary called The Real Amityville Horror, Rick Osuna, O-S-U-N-A, author of the book The Night the DeFeos Died, he says, quote, Herman Rays was a criminologist hired by the defense. Herman Rays, in a closed courtroom, that means they cleared out the public, told the judge and the prosecutor that some of the bodies had been moved, that they were not all killed in the positions they were found. He also said he believed that multiple weapons were used, not just one high-powered rifle, end quote. And journalist Rick Moran was contacted by a drug enforcement agent many years later. This drug enforcement agent said to this journalist, to Rick Moran, that he had the home under observation at the time of the killings and had seen Don, the 18-year-old daughter, leave the house. Moran said, quote, On the night of the murder, that operative did see Don DeFeo wearing a jacket and gloves come out of the house with a rifle, throw the rifle into the back seat of her car, and drive out towards the point where the city has a dock, which is exactly where the weapon was found by police divers later on. When he told the police that a hooded black-handed demon came to him and handed him the weapon, but that he didn't move, I believe that it's true. I don't think that he was in any condition to move. The demon that he was talking about was his own sister. End quote. Rick Osuna, author of The Night the DeFeos Died, would go on to add, quote, Don DeFeo's nightclothes show unburnt powder, which indicates she may have fired a rifle that night. End quote. So did Butch and Don plan to kill their parents together? I guess is the question. Well, Moran said, quote, His original testimony was that at some point, a hooded, black-handed demon handed him a weapon, and then he went upstairs, and that he committed the murder. He said the murder, not the murders. End quote. Over the years, Butch changed his story God knows how many times, so he was not what you would call a credible witness or a source of information. Veteran news reporter and producer Marvin Scott, he is an 11-time Emmy winner. He's a member of the New York State Broadcasters Hall of Fame. He corresponded with Butch DeFeo through letters over the years. 
And Marvin Scott says, quote, In handwritten letters to me, he claims his sister Dawn began the killing spree and that he shot her in self-defense while trying to wrestle the gun away from her. In other accounts, he claimed the mob shot everyone. At the outset, he said he was high on pot in the basement and didn't hear the shooting. But at one point he confessed, suggesting he heard voices telling him to kill everyone. End quote. The fact is, is that when all is said and done, the two younger brothers, 11-year-old Mac and 9-year-old John Matthew, the two sisters, 18-year-old Don and 13-year-old Allison, and the two parents, Ronald Sr. and Louise, all lost their lives that night. The following morning, Butch reported for work, as usual, at the family business, his grandfather's Buick dealership. Around 6.30 p.m. that evening, he suddenly burst into a place down the street from the house called Henry's Bar, where he was a regular. It no longer exists, but he was yelling frantically, pretty much, you know, help me, you've got to help me, my parents have been shot. So five people he knew at the bar got into his car and they flew back up the street to the house. The bodies of the whole family were discovered at that time. The authorities were called and Butch, as the sole survivor, was initially put into protective custody. At first, he tried to pin the blame on the mob, saying that his family had mafia connections. After about a day or so, he confessed to the murders to Detective Dennis Rafferty. At his trial, William Weber, his attorney, the defense attorney, tried to prove insanity, but the jury wasn't having it. They found him sane and guilty on all six counts of second-degree murder. He was to serve six consecutive 25-year-to-life prison terms, one for each murder. So he was found guilty in a court of law, so that was pretty much that. He remained in prison until his death on March 12, 2021. So, whatever the details are of what actually happened, there are a few things about the murders that have never been fully explained. For one thing, all six family members were found dead in their beds with no signs of any struggles or any attempts to defend themselves. No knocked-over furniture, there was even a jigsaw puzzle that was perfectly intact next to one of the bodies on a small side table. The parents were in one room, the two younger boys shared a room, and the two girls each had their own room. What's more, the bedrooms were spread out over two floors of the house. There have been theories that there may have been more than one killer. If so, then was it both Butch and Don? Or was there a third unidentified person involved? Toxicology reports prove that there was nothing in the systems, nothing in the, nothing in the bloodstreams of any of the murder victims to indicate that they'd been drugged or sedated in any way. There were no physical signs of there being a silencer on the rifle, no fragments that would have been found at the crime scene, According to the History Channel, autopsy results proved that the bodies were all found in their original positions, that nobody was killed and then placed in their beds. That contradicts what the criminologist Herman Reyes told the judge and the prosecutor in the closed courtroom, at least according to Rick Osuna. But what's strangest is that Butch fired off a high-powered 35 caliber Malin rifle eight times in the middle of the night, and nobody in the neighborhood reported hearing a thing other than a young kid who was in high school at the time, John Nemeth. He was a couple of doors down. He said that he heard Shaggy, the DeFeo family dog, howling incessantly for about 15 or 20 minutes. But the weird thing is, is that he never mentioned hearing any rifle sounds. According to 2005's documentary, The Real Amityville Horror, they estimate that the murders happened between 3 and 3.30 a.m. So, who knows? So how do we untangle all of this? We probably will never be able to. Too many years have passed, too many lies and contradicting testimonies have been told, Butch is now deceased, so that's what we have to work with. The important thing to respectfully remember, despite all of the publicity and the media buildup and the movies, especially the increasingly ridiculous sequels and direct-to-video releases, 
the rumors, the half-truths, the paranormal theories, the practical theories, it's all spiraled completely out of control over the past 47 years. But when all is said and done, an entire family, including an 18-year-old and three minors, were all killed in their own beds in November 1974. The house stayed empty for over a year. It was eventually put on the market, and that's where the second phase of the Amityville story begins to take shape. After Butch was convicted and sentenced in early 1975, the house was put up for sale, a significantly reduced rate for obvious reasons, as you can imagine. And as strange as it may sound, this is where I want to lighten the mood. Again, respectfully, but to talk about the 1979 movie's depiction of what supposedly came next as a product of Hollywood. So, there will be the usual top 10 facts coming up. I'm not going to call them fun, but fascinating. And the trivia segment that will be purely relevant to the movie or the history of the house and not the real-life tragedy. So the house was bought by George and Kathleen Lutz, newlyweds with three children from her first marriage, two boys and a girl. According to George Lutz in the 2005 documentary, quote, When you look at enough homes, you get a sense for what feels good to you and what doesn't. This house had no reservations for us. We discussed the events that happened in the house as a family and came to the decision that we would all be okay with the history of what had happened. But I don't think any of us considered the possibility that there would be something residual there. End quote. They moved in December of 1975, 28 days later, they moved out with nothing but the clothes on their backs. They left behind all of their possessions. Furniture, clothes, toys, a fully stocked fridge. They claimed paranormal experiences ranging from swarms of flies that would randomly appear to freezing cold temperatures no matter how many fires they lit, to personality changes, to the sounds of a matching band playing in the living room downstairs in the middle of the night. Kathy said that she would be embraced from behind by someone or something unseen, but she got the vibe that it was a female presence that wasn't necessarily threatening. The oldest of the three kids, Danny Lutz, he went public in 2012 as a middle-aged man in a documentary called My Amityville Horror. He claims that a window came down on his fingers and smashed them, and when his mother brought him into the kitchen to ice them, a spirit entered the kitchen, walked past a butter knife on top of a peanut butter jar, and knocked it down, then approached the table. Strangely enough, William Weber, the defense attorney who represented Butch DeFeo, he got involved with the claims that the Lutzes were making. According to Laura DiDio, who was a news intern and assistant in New York City, she was a communications major at Fordham University at the time, she met with the Lutzes for a good five hours to get their story. She was working for ABC. Didio said in an interview in November 2020, quote, William Weber has said that they concocted, he and the Lutzes concocted the story of the haunting over several bottles of wine. The Lutzes actually played me the tape when I went and met with them on the second occasion. I went out to Kathy's mother's house on a Saturday night, and they played me the tape that they had made, a little cassette recording with William Weber. And in fact, they said to me before they played it, they said, look, we're not really proud of this. So on the tape, you do hear William Weber and the Lutzes talking about, okay, the plan was to put the house in a trust. They would do a four-way split of money between Weber, Weber's partner, Bernie Burton, and George and Kathy to almost make it like a haunted house attraction, charge money, etc. And even at that point, William Weber was saying, well, there's at least two movies and three books out of this, which sounds like a pretty daring and ambitious scheme at the time. But even William Weber couldn't have believed where this would lead. And I remember on the tape very, very vividly, George said, listen, I don't want the children involved in any of this. They are to be kept out of it. 
We don't want them in any way portrayed or paraded out for the media. And I clearly remember William Webber saying, oh, no, 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 don't worry about that. No, the children, God bless them. They'll be kept out of this. So when the tape finished, and they were saying things like, we could say, this happened at such and such a time. So when the tape finished, they said, what do you think of that? We're ashamed of this, and we want you to know that we're not involved with William Webber anymore, and we don't want to do any of this. Do you still want to talk to us? And I said, well, I think that if you really were haunted, what you really have to do is get professional help for you and your family. What I can do is introduce you to some legitimate paranormal investigators, and that was Ed and Lorraine Warren. End quote. There was eventually a seance held in the house, or as DiDio calls it, quote, a psychic slumber party, end quote. That night, the night of the seance, something occurred that has never been explained. They had cameras set up all over the house, and at one point during the night, one of the cameras set up in the upstairs hallway captured in a single frame the image of what looks like a little boy. His eyes are glowing. His face is stoic. There were no children in the house that night, of course, so who was it? So go on to Google Images, type in Amityville Ghost Boy, take a look at it, and judge for yourself. Laura DiDio has plainly said that she just does not know. Some say it's proof that there was something there. Some even go so far as to say that it might be the ghost of one of the murdered DeFeo boys, and others say that the photo is a fake. If you want to take a look at it, go ahead and you decide. But let's pivot towards the movie itself, directed by Stuart Rosenberg, who also did 1967's Cool Hand Luke, starring George Kennedy and Paul Newman. From the tagline itself, I have to say, it is difficult to take this movie too seriously. The tagline is, for God's sake, get out, with the exclamation point. Mustn't forget the exclamation point. George Lutz is played by James Brolin. Yep, that one. <laughs> Father to Josh Brolin of the Goonies, and of course, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame as Thanos. Kathy Lutz is played by Superman's very own Margot Kidder. She's Lois Lane in those four movies. She was a so-called scream queen herself before Jamie Lee Curtis entered the scene in 1978's Halloween. Margot Kidder was in 1973's thriller called Sisters, directed by Brian De Palma. And 1974's Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark, who also did <laughs> the first Porky's <laughs> and the holiday staple, A Christmas Story. You know, Ralphie wanting a BB gun. The Friendly Neighborhood Priest, named Father Delaney in the movie, though in real life his name was apparently Ray Pecoraro. He's played by Academy Award winning Rod Steiger, star of 1967's In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier. Murray Hamilton is Father Ryan, great character actor in his day. He was Mr. Robinson in 1967's The Graduate. He was the mayor in 1975's Jaws. So the cast is solid, the director is qualified, the movie is adapted from the book, The Amityville Horror, A True Story, written by Jay Anson, which was released on September 13th, 1977. And the book was based on the accounts of George and Kathy Lutz, who, who strangely... I said never to have even met Anson before, during, or after the publication of the book. A lot of the book's claims have been called into question, and even paranormal investigator Lorraine Warren herself, she has said that she and her husband Ed do not endorse the book or the movie in any way. The reality is, of course, that the movie does embellish quite a bit, but that's no surprise. That's what Hollywood does. The movie opens with a shot of the house with the famous evil eye-shaped windows at the top floor looking out at us. 
The movie opens with a shot of the house with its famous evil eye-shaped windows on the top floor looking out at us, just looking and leering. Creepy music that sounds like a children's choir plays as it transitions from dusk to pitch black, nighttime to dawn. A real estate agent shows George and Kathy the house going from room to room. In a bit of foreshadowing, she points out a real wood-burning fireplace that'll make everything nice and cozy, she says. And the backstory of the DeFeo murders is told pretty strangely, but effectively too. We'll be in the middle of the realtor saying something, or the three of them walking into a certain room when all of a sudden the audio and the video will freeze. There'll be a flashback to one of the DeFeo murders happening in that very room that they're about to enter. If you think about it, you can see what they were going for, and it's not the worst idea in terms of narrative structure. It, it just, it plays awkwardly, the pacing is a bit off, but I, I don't know, I know I'm contradicting myself. I want to say that it doesn't work, but I also want to say that in a strange and creative way it does work. So, either way, she finishes showing them the house, she leaves them up on the top floor to talk things over, she goes down to the kitchen to do some paperwork at the table. A slight breeze comes up, blows her papers around, and that's when she's there like, yeah, dog, I'm out of here. Meanwhile, upstairs, Kathy says to George, I wish all those people didn't die here. I mean, a guy kills his whole family, and and she shudders and says, doesn't it bother you? George's response, houses don't have memories. Ah, George. So they agree to buy the house, they hug and they laugh and they whirl around like two thrashing machines, and then it's moving day. And in another bit of foreshadowing, they're unpacking. He holds up a crucifix and asks her where she wants it. She gets all giddy and she says, oh, I know, I know. It's like, calm down, calm down, honey. She says, on the wall in the living room where the light will come in through the window, it'll make it look beautiful. And she's got this big grin with 4,000 teeth. She smiles like she just won the Nobel Prize. They give up on lining the shelves. They go join the kids outside in the backyard with the dog by the boathouse. And they're having themselves a grand old time. Again, the house is right on the water in the movie and in real life. Then Father Delaney, played by Rod Steiger. He drives up, he knocks on the front door, he's there to bless the house. Kathy was expecting him, she confirms this in a later scene, that she had requested that he come over to bless the house. In real life, Kathy did indeed ask a priest who was a friend to do this. She was a devout Catholic, she had an aunt who was a nun. And in the movie, when no one answers the door because they're all out back, he just waltzes in, puts on his cloak, opens his satchel to take out some religious paraphernalia. He starts to do his thing when he hears buzzing. He looks at the window and sees all of these flies congregating. He suddenly, he suddenly gets slapped by an unseen force. He's covered with swarms of flies. The door opens by itself, and a growling voice orders him to get out, which he does post-haste. He stumbles back outside. He goes to his car where he doubles over, and he's retching. The exterior shot of the house at that point shows that it's surrounded by woods. Again, most definitely not the case with the house in real life. It's actually right by an intersection. So be aware that there are some spoiler-filled comments coming up. If you don't want to hear them just yet, if you want to see the movie, just hit the pause button, go watch the movie, and then come on back to finish this episode up. It'll be waiting for you. With that said, let's proceed. Incrementally, more and more paranormal events and disturbances pile up as the Lutz family soon find themselves at the end of their rapidly fraying rope. They experience blood running down the walls, toilets backed up with black liquid, phones that don't work when the priest tries to call and warn them. Mr. Robinson, he has a scene with Rod Steiger where he's the total skeptic and writes everything off as hysteria. And all I can think of is his line in Jaws when he dismisses the idea of a shock on the waters and tells the reporter at the beach, But as you see, it's a beautiful day. Amity, as you know, means friendship. Ironic, isn't it? And not a shocker for a 70s-era horror movie, the movie also delivers more than just a few cheap thrills. 
Margot Kidder bears all in an odd scene where she's doing these leg stretches in front of her bedroom mirror. She has her pajama top completely unbuttoned and she's got her underwear on. She takes a second to put a flower behind her hair sensuously. She's alone in the room. And this is before James Brolin, her husband, George, this is before he even walks in. But walk in he does. And after some mild pillow talk, they're both soon in horizontal positions. It's a really weird and sudden setup. You feel like asking the editor if he might have forgotten a reel. But there it is. And if you want more Brolin eye candy, there are some lovely low camera angles of him in his tidy whities as he leaves one room in the middle of the night and the camera pans from left to right. It's following him walking across the hall. So mystery is over because there he is, folks. And if that's your cup of cappuccino, then drink up. So then Kathy's aunt, who's a nun, she arrives to see the house, but is immediately revolted, and she insists that she cannot stay. She runs out to her car, she drives off, then pulls over to the side of the road, and yes, why not? A second round of reactionary retching. It's a recurring theme, I guess. But meanwhile, George, he's freezing his ass off, so he's always either outside chopping wood or burning wood trying to get warm, and he just cannot get warm. Kathy wakes up from a nightmare, screaming like a banshee, she was shot in the head! poor Father Delaney, he's spending the rest of the movie getting psychologically and physically tortured. The movie depicts George as getting more irritable, more prone to threatening outbursts at Kathy, at the caterer, at Kathy's brother's wedding, at the kids, the three kids. Kathy's and George's little girl, Amy, in the film, the names of the three Lutz kids were all changed for the movie. In the movie, her name is Amy. She makes friends with an unseen new chum named Jody. To the movie's credit, there is a well-written scene where she tells her mother that Jody has told Amy all about the little boy who used to live in her room, but he got hurt and died. Kathy looks at her in shock and asks, what else does Jody tell you? And Amy replies as casually as can be, she says she wants me to live here forever and ever so we can all play together. Keep in mind, this came out in 1979, one year before The Shining. If you've seen The Shining, then you're probably thinking the same thing that I thought, that this was a ripoff, the Grady girls say pretty much the same thing to Danny Torrance in the Stanley Kubrick movie. There's another skillfully shot and edited moment that's about a minute later when Kathy grabs the phone to call Father Delaney because of what Amy has just revealed. The call fails to stay connected, so she's tearfully and anxiously leaning against the wall, and she whispers, Oh Lord, hear my prayer, and hasten to answer me. Dramatic words, you know, a little bit of a theatrical flourish in the scene, but we can forgive it. Then a breeze subtly comes up. It flows through her hair as the camera pans from left to right, and it gives us her vantage point. It scans the front hallway and the dining room. Suddenly, there's a scratching at the kitchen door. The camera slowly zooms out on her. She goes over to the door, and standing outside is a weird-looking guy who he keeps sniffing, and he's all pale, and he says... Everybody wanted to come over and welcome you to the neighborhood, and he holds up a six-pack of beer upside down. She's looking at him strangely. She looks like she's making a move to open the door, don't ask me why. The phone rings. She asks him to hold on. Of course, nobody's on the other end. So she goes back to the door, and Mr. Sniffles is gone. Didn't even leave the beer. And that's where the pause button is getting hit, so that we can go behind the scenes and take a look at the top 10 fascinating facts about the film, some of them which do go hand-in-hand hand with the history of the house. Number 10. Some pretty famous names are associated with Amityville long before it became the hub of paranormal investigations and cheap movie franchises. Familiar with the name Robert Goddard? 
He was an American space engineer and physicist who built the world's first liquid-fueled space rocket. He launched it in 1926. He was there. Annie Oakley, the one with the rifle, the sharpshooter from the early 20th century, she lived in Amityville during the summertime when the headquarters of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was nearby. Gangster Al Capone was even a summertime resident at one point. Silent movie actor and cowboy Will Rogers lived there for a while, too. And George Washington, in his diary, documented how he spent a day in Amityville in his tour of Long Island. He dined at the Zebulon Ketchum House on April 21st, 1790. They even have a plaque to commemorate that. Number nine. The 1979 movie is officially an Oscar-nominated film. Lalo Schifrin's eerie musical score was nominated. The award went to Georges Delirue for A Little Romance. Number eight. This movie is officially a multi-nominee for the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. Yeah, those things exist. <laughs> Margot Kidder was nominated for Worst Actress, but she, air quote, lost to Barbara Streisand for the main event. Ironically, Barbara Streisand and James Brolin, of course, are married in real life. So, James Brolin, he was nominated for Worst Actor for Amityville, but he, air quote, lost to Robbie Benson for Walk Proud. Kidder and Brolin, they also shared a nomination for Worst On-Screen Couple, but that went to Streisand and Ryan O'Neill for the main event. Number seven. George in the movie is depicted as this sexy, bearded hunk of burning love, as well as a loving and sensitive stepfather to Kathy's three kids. At least until the house begins to slowly but surely possess him and get him all pale and sweaty and disheveled, and predating The Shining by a year, force him to swing an axe in his wife's direction. But in real life, his reputation has been sullied. Oldest son, Danny, the one who made my Amityville horror in 2012, and the youngest son, Christopher, both have claimed separately over the past decade or so that George was into the occult, that he had books on the subject, that he was domineering, abusive, possessive. He apparently insisted that the three children take his last name before agreeing to marry Kathy so that they would be his kids. You know, so accusations of physical and verbal abuse. A far cry from the doting, underwear-clad guy in the movie who gives Margot Kidder her second dose of Superman in the scene that I have previously described. Number six. I don't know if the real George Lutz had anything to do with this, or if it's just Hollywood being Holly weird, but the 2005 remake also sexes George Lutz up a lot. In this one, he's played by none other than Ryan Reynolds, who spends what feels like most of the movie's running time, at least, either wearing paper-thin, form-fitting white t-shirts, so just no shirt at all. So we're all invited to admire what terrific abs he's got. George Lutz becomes, in this franchise, the archetypal epic hero, and it's a fictional take on this guy, who, by most accounts, was pretty unsavory in real life. Number five. In the mid-90s, Margot Kidder was interviewed, and she rolled her eyes at the Amityville Horror, saying, quote, it's such a terrible movie, end quote. On the bonus feature of the 2004 edition of the DVD, which is called simply, for God's sake, Get Out, <laughs> Kidder says, quote, horror movies are really, really fun, and that's the most important thing to remember about them. You're on that edge of serious camp all the time. Well, on a crass level, my agent said we do one for money, one for the hat and I had just been in Superman, so on a superficial level, and no actor can ever divorce this from their career, but nobody ever talks about it, so I might as well. We could get my first big salary, so that was one reason to do it. And then as I got into it, I just thought it was fun. 
I remember one press conference with the writers, who really were fun and had a great twinkle in their eye, and some press guy said to me, do you think these ghosts are real or something? Or do you think the story is real was the question. I thought, I don't know what to answer. So I turned to the writers and I said, well, do you? And they went, we'll never tell. I was actually being quite naughty and not fully committing to the notion that this was all true. I really should have had I been doing my work in a more serious vein. End quote. Number four. In the movie, George's business partner and his wife, a psychic, arrive at the house to check things out. They stumble upon a hidden room in the basement that, in the film, the Lutzes say they knew nothing about. It's painted red, it's demonic-looking, and it glows in the psychic wife's face as she stares straight in and her face contorts like Linus as he's yelling for the Great Pumpkin. Her voice gets all gravelly as she screams, It's a passage to hell! And even though the real George Lutz has gone on record as saying that the room is not in the original plans, that whole thing was just completely debunked. Patrick... Ireland, a childhood friend of the murdered DeFeo boys, came forward in the Smithsonian Channel program The Real Story in 2009 to say that he himself and the DeFeo boys painted that room themselves. It's not even a room, it's more of a like an alcove under the stairs, a storage area, like a big closet. According to Ireland, Mr. DeFeo came home with a bunch of red paint that was apparently on sale at the local hardware store, gave the boys some brushes, and said, have fun, boys. And Island went on to say that if the sale had been on blue paint, then they probably would have called it the Blue Room. Number three. In one of the movie's biggest WTF moments, and I don't mean what terrific fun, George and Kathy, all worked up from the discovery of the so-called Red Room in the basement, they react back upstairs. And remember that crucifix that Kathy was all excited to have George put on the wall of the living room? It is now upside down. So? They do what any rational person would do. They go over to it, they grab it, and they walk from room to room throughout the house and pray thusly, Peace to this house and all who enter here. Forgive us our sins and save us from all illness. Grant this through Jesus Christ our Lord. And they say this thing together like it's in their bag of tricks, you know, just in case they ever needed it. The real Lutzes claim to have actually done this. The real George claims that it was the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, that they recited. But he added that they heard disembodied voices suddenly yell at them, Will you stop? There are no such voices in the movie, though. Number two. One of the most memorable images from the film is when George, his business partner, and that psychic wife find the passage to hell, that red room in the basement. George looks inside. He sees his own reflection staring straight back at him. It's an unnerving thought, maybe, on paper, in the script. That reflection is not James Brolin. It is his real-life brother wearing a fake beard. And number one. James Brolin, at first, wasn't sure about signing on to do the movie. There was no script yet. He was told to read Jay Anson's book, so he started reading one night at 7, and he was still at it around 2 a.m. He had hung a pair of his pants up in the room earlier, and at a really tense pat in the book, as he says, the pants fell down from wherever they'd been hanging from. He jumped, and he left scratch marks on the ceiling, and knew that there was something to the story. So he agreed to the movie. But even though he became friendly with George Lutz and his children, he was highly doubtful of their claims. He says in that bonus feature on the DVD, I'm a skeptic about it. So there you have the top 10 fascinating facts about the production of the Amityville Horror, and a couple of things about the real-life history of the film as well. And now it is time for the final segment of today's show, the trivia. Now I already mentioned earlier why there was no poll put up in the socials leading up to this episode, but there was a trivia question from last time, 
We looked at 1991 Silence of the Lambs, and the question was, what 1976 film got Silence of the Lambs star Jodie Foster, who was then just 14 years old, her first Academy Award nomination? The hints that were given, she played opposite Robert De Niro. It's a Martin Scorsese crime drama thriller. Her character's name is Iris. And three great folks returned to the winner's circle with the correct answer of Taxi Driver. Which celebrates its 45th anniversary this year. I have every intention of having that be the focus of an upcoming episode before 2021 is out. As for the winners, Mary C., there you are, right on target as ever. It is always a pleasure to get your responses. Thank you for the support and your involvement. And standing alongside Mary is musician Jason Ebbs, another return winner. I said it before, and I'll say it again. This guy's music is the real deal. Check out his albums, The Deep End and Super Ego. He's got tracks like Clementine, Not Even Over, which has a video on YouTube, Indie Kids, Sister, Forgotten, The Deep End. Give his YouTube channel some love. Look him up on Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. That's Jason Ebbs with two Bs. And my friend and fellow podcaster over in New Zealand, Tommy Goodwin, one half of Rewatch, Relive, Repeat, or I3. And Tommy also knows his taxi driver trivia. Mary, Jason, Tommy, you rock, you roll. All right. So before we go, there's one last thing. This episode's trivia question. Like I always say, it does not matter when you send in your answer. If you're listening to this and it's Valentine's Day, if you're listening to episodes out of order, it does not matter. Just answer whichever question from whatever episode you're on, whenever you feel compelled to. You will get a personalized meme and a shout-out in the following episode. So for a personalized meme and a no-strings-attached shout-out, take a crack at this one. In 2005, the Amityville Horror was remade. In the cast was a young actress playing the Lutz daughter. The actress's name is Chloe Grace Moretz, that's M-O-R-E-T-Z, and she would go on to become a fairly successful actor in movies like 2010's Kick-Ass, 2010's Diary of a Wimpy Kid, 2011's Hugo, directed by Martin Scorsese, the 2018 remake of Suspiria, and the animated Adams Family movies. She is the voice of Wednesday Adams, the first one in 2019, the second one now, 2021. But in 2013, she was the leading character in what remake of a classic Stephen King story, the original film version from 1976. Co-starring in this 2013 remake as her mother is Julianne Moore, who we talked about last time as Jodie Foster's replacement in the Silence of the Lambs sequel. Be sure to check out that episode too, by the way, if you haven't already. I'll give you one more hint. Sissy Spacek originated the role in the 1976 original, and it was directed by Brian De Palma. What is this movie that is based on Stephen King's first novel? Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own, that you want to share in your views of the Amityville situation, the real-life tragedy, the movies, the books, the actors involved, hit me up on my socials, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, Film Group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. That does it for episode 28. As always, folks, thank you for taking the time to listen. At this moment, it's only right to give another round of shout-outs and thank-yous to everybody who came on Silver Screeners over the past month, who have shared their thoughts and made the episodes even better than I could have hoped for. My friend and colleague Jamie and her brother Eric, they came on board for episode 23. We looked at the entire Halloween franchise to get ourselves all psyched up for Halloween kills. They had great personal stories to tell about their own memories of the movies. Another big thank you to Jamie for the kick-ass Michael Myers mug that you presented me with after that episode dropped. I'm going to include a photo of it on the socials when I upload this episode that you can all see her excellent taste and festive ceramics. <laughs> Thanks again to both of you for taking the time to come on.
Next, I want to give it up for Ian Graham from the podcast Cult Connections. Ian, he came on episode 25 where he and I chatted about the 90th anniversary of Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi, and Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff. This episode was our first collaboration. We will definitely get together again moving forward. Ian, it was great to talk with you and to get your thoughts on these movies and everything that they carry with them through the decades. And anyone listening, be sure to check out his podcast, Cult Connections. It's really, it's a great one. Best way to do it justice is to read the description. Quote, It finds the links between all kinds of film, TV, books, and more. From cult classics to major blockbusters, we have everything covered. End quote. I also had the pleasure of having on silver screenist Tommy Goodwin from Rewatch, Relive, Repeat for a look at 1941's The Wolfman and 81's An American Werewolf in London. Tommy also, with his wife Shannon, has a great show of his own. Together, the two of them, they rewatch some classic movies from their childhoods, they review them through a modern lens, and as they say in their program description, quote, we just want to relive some of the magic and have some fun along the way, end quote. They have done episodes on Beetlejuice, The Sandlot, The Last Action Hero, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Short Circuit, Jurassic Park, a, f- a slew of others. Tommy and I are in regular contact. We will continue to be collaborating in the future as well. And I also want to give a thank you to Mike Davis, who collaborated with me on an episode that paid homage to the original Star Wars trilogy back in early September. He has a podcast called Now This Is Podcasting, which is purely Star Wars focused. And back in June, my very first guest, I want to give another shout-out and another thank you to Armak Kantrowitz, spelled with a K. He wrote a great book and talked about the trials of Errol Flynn and Lana Turner, those Hollywood scandals of the golden age of Hollywood. And on top of all of these episodes where I had people on, the past month also has had a couple of episodes all pertaining to horror for Halloween season. So if you're really feeling the Halloween spirit, or if you just love horror movies... And if you want to hear me having conversations with these fine folks, go check out those episodes and enjoy. So thank you again to everyone listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. No complaints here if you take a second to give the show a rating on Apple or iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to boost the algorithms. It helps to get more people to stumble across the show. If you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be absolutely wonderful. Rock on. Thanks again. My name is Frank. I'll be seeing you in the next episode. Until next time, keep on screening. Happy Halloween. And I leave you with this thought. The Amityville Horror came out in 1979. One of its most memorable scenes involved the Red Room. The Shining came out one year later in 1980. One of its most memorable lines of dialogue is little Danny chanting, Red Rum. Coincidence? I think not. Happy Halloween, folks.